Welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast. We're connecting speech and language pathologists with resources and emerging trends in our field. I'm Leanne, your host, and I am delighted to have Sarah Barr back on the podcast for today's episode. She's going to be talking about tossing out the workbooks and reinventing your cognitive treatment. She has amazing tips and tricks that she's learned over the last couple years of doing her own investigative process to reinvent her own practice and make therapy fun and functional. Well, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited. Woohoo! I'm so happy to be here again. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And today I'm so excited to talk about cognition and functional cognition treatments. Let's do this. The options we have go so far beyond the game closet that is available to us. Oh, I'm so excited. I learned so much from our last talk that I've been like implementing and looking for new ways and trying things out. I've loved it. Loved it. Yes. Awesome. Well, I hope that I can give you guys just like a few tidbits and ideas and just some things to think about today. And um, I am available if people want to chat or reach out. My email is sarah at Therapy. Uh, com. So there, people are definitely welcome to contact me if they have questions afterwards. Super. Excellent. All right. Well, lead the way, Sarah. Woohoo. Okay. So, um, well, a little bit about me is that I am a clinical speech pathologist. I've worked across a bunch of different settings for about 11 years now. And uh, about five years ago, I started feeling a little bit frustrated with Um, a bunch of things in our treatment closets. And so for the sake of today's topic, we'll kind of like focus on cognition. And I noticed that um, I stuck a deck of cards in my scrub pockets every day and just kind of made those work where when I was zipping around to different rooms, um, I would do acute care, outpatient therapy, inpatient rehab. Um, I got to work across all different settings. And I didn't really know what to do if patients told me they did not like games. And it started to occur to me that, hmm, maybe maybe there's actually not a lot of game people in the world. And so is it their problem if they don't want to do the things that we traditionally give them to do? Um, I know in the large rehab setting I was in, we would even just call those patients, you know, non-compliant. Like, hey, they didn't want to play um, solitaire today. They gave me some attitude about it. They are non-compliant. And over just the years of treating a bunch of different people, I started to see that actually maybe the problem was with the therapy materials that we had and started doing a deep dive on what is actually evidence-based for cognition. And to be honest, the article that we're going to talk about today, I carried this whole series of articles with me every day at work because I had to reread it to myself like weekly to give myself a pep talk because it felt so different from doing the game therapy that I had been taught. And like many people, that's kind of what our um, therapy world was built upon. Mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. Kind of a long intro to say I did end up starting the Honeycomb Speech Therapy website. Um, It's a blog in a store of therapy materials, and it's just a way for me to think about how we can do more functional therapy for patients and um, put those products out there for other speech therapists that might be looking for 
just more usable, functional options in therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought today, as we dive into cognition, we could talk about this one, one part of my favorite article, and these are called the INCOG recommendations. And it's spelled I-N-C-O-G, and that abbreviation really stands for a panel of experts in the field of cognition and brain injury. Um, in our own field of speech pathology, Dr. Lynn Turkstra was on this panel of experts, and what they did was really a systematic review of the different areas of cognition, looked at all the research, and then came up with recommendations. And I just thought these reviews were so helpful and really impactful in my own way of practice. Now, now I couldn't find, I was gonna link them all, and I couldn't find all of them for free, but I'm assuming many people listening may have access to find these articles through um, like ASHA or maybe their organization has some different databases. I know I did have access to these um, at that be, through one of those mm-hmm. connections as well. And um, sometimes searching through Google Scholar, Google Scholar can find links where just plain regular Google doesn't necessarily find links to the articles that yes. you can read that are yes. like PDF files on the web. Yes, totally. So um, what I thought we'd do today is, first of all, wanted to explain the INCOG recommendations. They're really split up into five sections. And so the first section just talks about the methods and overview for this project. And the second section is the one we're going to be talking about today. And it talks about um, treating cognition, specifically attention and processing speed. Um, And then just so everyone else knows the other sections that they can check out, the third section is about executive function. The fourth one talks about cognitive communication. And then the fifth one is memory. So there, I mean, this series is really awesome. Um, And just wanted to read a little quote in, this actually was in the fourth section, but this flavor goes through all the sections. So to kind of start us out today with a little thought, it says, treatment should remain focused on everyday social participation activities rather than decontextualize games that have little relevance or generalization to the person's everyday communication experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of the flavor and the, the direction we're going to go. Yeah. Um, when when you read the section on attention and processing speed, what's really neat is that ASHA has this article in their evidence maps. And so they actually synthesize some recommendations from the article. Ooh, that's and they, handy. It is. It's kind of like, you know, for all of us busy SLPs, we have a hard time really sifting through just tons of pages of research and then figuring out, okay, well, what does this mean? How do I apply this? And Mm -hmm. so for people who are just busy and like, okay, just give me the main point here, this is a really good option. And so I thought that would be a great way for us to discuss the article. Um, Asha put out four different recommendations from the attention and processing part of the article, and we're just gonna take them one by one here. Okay. Okay, so their first recommendation Um, reading the art or you know going through that systematic review of how we need to treat attention 
They said their first recommendation is metacognitive strategy training using functional everyday activities should be considered to improve attention. And they specified that this is for the mild and mild to moderate attention deficit level. So that kind of sounds like a mouthful when you first read it, especially if people aren't familiar with that phrase, metacognitive strategy instruction, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That sometimes is abbreviated as MSI. And my favorite way to use metacognitive strategy instruction is what I call goal, plan, do, review. Um, This sort of framework is a process that you use with patients in therapy. And the whole goal of it is to allow them to choose strategies and evaluate the success of strategies and decide if something needs to change for the next time. And so the process is what you do in therapy and you can measure different parts of the process and see how well they do with the process. So instead of you giving them the strategy and seeing how they implement it, Mm -hmm. you want to see if they can come up with a strategy. Oh, nice. Yeah. So um, like one example that I wanted to give was a gentleman that I saw in outpatient therapy and Um, We sometimes he his wife was saying that he often got confused when they were like out at the grocery store or the hardware store that his um, he would get off task very easily due to attention issues. And so we used the goal plan do review framework and we were in a hospital setting and we came up with some tasks for him to do down in our busy lobby and you know there was like a starbucks and a gift shop and that sort of thing so we were trying to simulate more of like a community setting that his wife was describing to us but um instead of us kind of reviewing and giving him the strategy of using signs in the lobby and that sort of thing we kind of let him go and do the tasks and he kind of bombed it right, you know, right away. And then we used the therapy time to go through that, um, you know, goal plan, do review framework. And it was really cool to see him start to select the strategies of like, oh, maybe I should have stopped in the lobby before I started and looked around at the the signs so I knew where I was going and kind of planned out what errands I would have to do. And so by the time we did that same task, like three weeks later, he even, as we headed down to the lobby, said to me, oh, remember last time I didn't even look at the signs before I started. And so it was really cool to see him kind of synthesizing Um, that, you know, he understood where he had gone wrong and what strategies he should use to help his attention. Um, So that's that's kind of an example of that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And if anybody isn't familiar with that, I have created a little book on my website. It's just called Book One. And it kind of goes through this metacognitive strategy instruction and gives a lot of clinical examples of how that could be applied to a variety of settings. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so that was the first recommendation from ASHA. The next recommendation says modifications to the environment and to the task may improve attention during functional activities. 
So I really like this one because again, you'll notice it's talking about how we need to be treating attention within those functional activities. But I think it really gives us a lot of creative freedom because doing modifications to the environment or the task that someone is needing to do really could look a million different ways, right? Mm -hmm. It's not saying like, this is the one thing, you know, you always teach somebody to cross off the like line once they've done it. It's saying like kind of sky's the limit. Like you can work within whatever the activity is that they need to do and modify it so that their attention is functioning better. Um, some different ways that I've, I've done this in the past, uh, I've, for example, I worked with somebody in their home who was having a hard time completing his blood sugar task um, because he was so scattered. So he like would start the process and get off task. And so we completed two modifications to help him do better. One is we gathered all of his blood sugar supplies in one central location so that he wasn't having to zip off to go get like where he would record his blood sugar and then his supplies were in a different spot. We kind of kept it in one spot. So that was, I documented about that, that that was in uh, a modification we completed to help his attention and sure enough, it did work. And then the other thing we did was we made a picture sequence for him for how he needed to complete the four steps and he we for him we made it like a um, flip book that seemed to work better than having all four pictures visible like on one page um, and that helped keep him on track like he'd flip the page and it kind of helped cue him just to go do that next step but um really the sky's the limit with how we could complete those external modifications to help somebody's attention function better. And I feel like a lot of times we just need permission as speech pathologists, like, yeah, it's okay to maybe try something you haven't tried with a different patient because mm -hmm. they might have different life circumstances. And this all to me fits under that umbrella of those modifications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the third recommendation from the guideline says, Dual task training can be used to improve attention on tasks similar to those being trained. And so, um, so one thing I think of when I think of the dual task training is what was done a lot in my rehab setting was the APT tasks where people are like listening to beeps and doing cross-offs and um, very, very decontextualized sort of task. Have you done that in your sort of setting? Uh, a little bit. Okay. It's yeah. like pretty, pretty popular around here. And the problem with doing just that task alone is that it really becomes passive for the patient. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of that idea of like, you, you're not applying this to anything in your everyday life. You're just kind of like listening to beeps and it doesn't relate yeah. to anything you're going to do from here. Yeah. I and like so that, I like that word that you use to describe it. Like everything about it is very decontextualized. And when people yeah. come in for therapy, like they want to be better in their life, like outside yes. of therapy. And when we're doing yes. things like reading a passage, cross off every a that you see in the passage yeah. or the word the then at the yeah. end i'm going to ask you some reading comprehension questions about it what right. does that relate to in their daily right. life when would you ever have to do that and you know i i think some people almost like 
think, oh, this is a cool challenge. But in my experience, that doing things like that actually have made patients mad because it's like their precious time. It's their life and they want to regain that. And it feels like insulting to them if we're choosing to spend our time on these tasks that seem so like and don't relate to the 99% of the other time that they're not in speech therapy. So kind of interesting. Um, This APT has been something that's interested me for a while because it, to me, it has been one of those tasks that patients really don't like and it just feels like um, passive and that they're really not relating it to something in their life. But actually, um, Dr. Solberg, who created this treatment, um, I think a couple decades ago now, really has come back from that and explained that if we do do this task, we need to be doing it in a different way than what was originally presented. Um, And I am going to send you that link to her interview in Mm -hmm. your show notes Mm -hmm. so other people can listen to her interview. But Um, She basically says that using this task alone or just even um, with other activities warrants caution. And this is not something that every patient is going to be a candidate for. And that if we do use this task, that it must be done in conjunction with functional tasks or strategies so that it is ultimately coming back and relating to their everyday life. So just some food for thought if other people are listening and their places of work have really relied heavily on those sort of tasks like mine did. Um, It's a very um, new way of thinking about it, but I think it's a beneficial interview to listen to with Dr. Solberg. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. And then the fourth recommendation from um, ASHA's synthesis of this guideline for attention says, Computer-based attention tasks are not recommended based on lack of evidence for improving performance in everyday functional activities. Okay, so this one, again, um, I don't know if anybody is familiar with different Facebook groups where you can go and say, hey, you know, I need an activity for memory. What should I do? I need an activity for attention. I have noticed in our field that this idea that different people can do like different apps or play Sudoku or um, play categories or checkers or chess or mastermind. Um, In our field, we are promoting those things as a therapy activity when really what this guideline is saying is that these activities have not been shown to relate to functional everyday life. And so if we are spending our time, you know, training somebody how to do a better job at doing Sudoku and pay attention to Sudoku, then the thing that they're going to be better at at the end of therapy is Sudoku. And (laughs) for every once in a while, a patient might have that goal, right? Mm -hmm. Like someone might actually want to get better at playing Sudoku. But when you really start asking people about their priorities, the vast majority don't really have one of their top priorities at getting better at playing a game Mm -hmm. or an app, a computer-based app. And so um, we really, as a first priority, need to be doing some of these other recommendations like working on 
functional activities and modifying the activity or the environment so that somebody can function better or using metacognitive strategy training to help with the process or even doing like a step-by-step training for a skill like if they needed to um, use their coffee maker or use their call light or something like that. That those are really the evidence-based treatments for attention and when we are as a first step going to that game closet, we're really getting off track right at that point. Mm -hmm. So it's for some people, I think a really sensitive topic because some practices, this is the way that people have been practicing for so long that maybe even just hearing someone say like, yeah, you shouldn't be using games in therapy. Um, I know that's this is something, a message that I'm trying to help get out there. And I know it can strike a nerve with people. And what I would say to that is just, you know, just like any field, our field has evolved and we've gotten more knowledge. And if you really feel a strong defense to using games, then I would just be curious about what the research base is that you're drawing from. Um, for me, it's been helpful. And like I mentioned, I carried around this um, review, the INCOG guidelines for like a year every day to and from work because I needed to reread it so often to help remind myself of like what the leaders in our field were recommending and just to not draw, to not go right to that game closet and to not feel like I needed to have cards in my pocket at all times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's what I've been noticing in my own practice as well lately, is when I keep kind of pulling out these things that I see maybe work for some patients, and I try to work on it with other patients, they have zero interest, zero buy-in, they don't see the connection between the skills that we're addressing with this decontextualized activity to something that's more important to them. Yeah, I know. And I like to remind people like we don't always a lot of patients aren't ready to go back to like, oh, hey, you were, you know, cooking gourmet meals before. Like we're not talking about like, yep, you better get out there in speech therapy and help them start making gourmet meals. We're just saying you need to be in the same interest sphere that's Mm -hmm. at the level that's appropriate for that patient. So, you know, maybe they could just be pulling out the ingredients from the pantry that's needed for dinner. Maybe that's the level that they're at before they even get to doing anything, you know, at the stove or actually cooking. But you want to you want them to see how what they're practicing is relating to that larger goal and that functional need. Sarah, can I ask you? A pretty yeah. tough question. Sure. Go so let's for say it. you get a new patient and you've identified some mild, moderate cognitive deficits. And so you're like, okay, well, let's find some functional things in your life that we can start working on. Okay. So, patient, how do you like to spend your day at home? I don't do anything. You, okay. <laughs> so then you're like, yes. let's talk about medication management. Oh, that's done for me. Okay. Let's talk about meals. Those are brought in for me. All right, finances, those are taken care of for me. It's like, well, do you do anything? And they're like, no, I just, I don't. I just, I really don't do anything. Right. So Sarah, that is a great question. Yeah, it's like that idea of, 
What if someone doesn't really express any functional needs? How are you supposed to figure out what you can do? So yeah, so ADLs is something I check on and a lot of those like, yeah, they might not have to handle any of those anymore. Um, the other kind of two immediate thoughts that I like to like go down is safety. And so I like to think about, hey, how are your, like, can you communicate about, you know, what's going on with you physically and your doctor? And how do you make a doctor's appointment? Or how are you doing with managing your blood sugars and, you know, stuff like that. So I kind of think through the safety realm. And then um, I guess that could look different than just medical too. It could look like, um, you know, planning. I, I went to one guy's house one time when I was seeing people in their homes and had kind of my one idea of what I was going to do. It was my first time being there and then got to his home and he had zero food in his house and zero plan of how to get food. I mean, I truly went out after that and brought stuff for the next two days for him until, you know, as we got a better plan in place. But um, there, there could be safety needs. So that would be one realm. And then the other realm I think about is just social connection. And so again, with different people, sometimes people are really not super social. And so that doesn't mean you need to take an introvert and get them like to go do like a quilter circle every week or anything like that. <laughs> but I just think even a tiny social connection, like, oh, do you, you know, talk to your, talk to your son once a week. Okay. Like, uh, how's that going? Could we make it any easier for you? Or are you have you stopped doing some social connections because of a change in your cognition? Um, do we need to set up a process for that? So those are the two spheres I think through. But then the last thought on that is just because someone could benefit from speech therapy doesn't mean they have to. And so I remind myself that and I say that phrase to myself to give me permission and freedom to put our role out there and offer to partner with the patient on something that they may need and then accept the answer if they feel like they don't need our our expertise at this time. And I feel like that really leaves us in such a nice light that if they would have in the future that they would feel comfortable letting us know about that mm -hmm. then you know the opposite if we try to force therapy when they really don't feel like there's a need for therapy but we kind of just hammer it anyway mm -hmm. that then it, I don't feel like that sort of situation lends itself to the patient bringing up a need if they actually would have a real need in the future does yeah. that make sense absolutely yeah thank you Sarah then as just a closing thought, I wanted to share a couple resources that have been helpful for me. Um, like I said, I kind of had been going along, playing all the games, doing all the card games, um, no matter what sort of patient I was seeing, no matter what age, that was just kind of what I was doing with people. And when I got real with myself, I needed to have some good sources for how could I figure out then what is actually evidence-based for our fields. And I wanted to share these systematic reviews because what you're really getting is 
um, the researchers are pulling all of these articles and giving you the compressed, succinct information. So you don't have to read all 30 of the studies. They kind of put them all together and then you get the meat and potatoes. Like, right, all of us who are treating, that's what we really want to read. So the places that I have found helpful, one is just ASHA's evidence maps, and that's where I got the recommendations from the guideline that we discussed today. And then ANCDS, um, and we'll have to put what the what that all stands for, Academy of, and then it goes on from there. <laughs> Many but, other um, important words related to cognition. Exactly. <laughs> They have evidence-based clinical research that is helpful to look at, and you can find some references there and then search for the article. And then the last one I wanted to mention was speechbite.com. And what you can do is type in a topic that you're looking for, and then um, they organize the results by, like, the best or strongest evidence. And then there's a link for those that are available that you can maybe view the article on a journal site. And so sometimes that process leads right to the full text for the article, which is very helpful as always, well. Always very helpful when you can read the whole yeah. thing. Yes, exactly. So so hopefully I gave you guys um, just some new ideas if this non-game cognitive therapy is a new thought. And um, even if you have been doing that, then help help us all, like I think all together as SLPs, we can promote how to do this in the clinical settings that we're in. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I think that making this switch in our field so that we're not just doing workbook therapy and playing games all day, it's really going to take all of us to figure out the most efficient ways to make that happen in the settings that we're in. And so I try not too much to promote like, oh, this is the one exact way you need to do things. Because I know myself, I've worked in a bunch of different settings. And so within the populations and setting that you're in, there is probably going to be you know, differences in how you actually make this happen. But I think these are the conversations we need to be having as a group of speech pathologists, because we need to both maintain our productivity standards, but also do what is evidence-based in our field. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yes. Um, you also sent me a link for a book as well. Yes. Okay. So this is just one of my favorite books as I was getting started with doing a better job of doing person-centered cognitive therapy. It's called Optimizing Cognitive Rehab. It's by Dr. Solberg and Dr. Turkstra. And it really goes through, um, like they have a whole section on that MSI, metacognitive strategy instruction that we talked about, and many other treatments kind of step-by-steps, a lot of um, just templates and handouts and ideas. And it's just another way to kind of reassure yourself that leaving that game closet closed is the right way to do it and gives you what you could do instead. Excellent. Perfect. Oh, so I have some questions related to like mm -hmm. mentorship. Like 
when you were going through this process of kind of reinventing how you practice and um, doing all this research for yourself, um, did you have a mentor, somebody that you could go to to learn more about this? Like, what were some of the ways? Yes. Okay. You know what? I just kind of like went to the top because in the place that I worked, the more medical model and playing games and card games and all that, it was just so deeply entrenched and heavily emphasized that I didn't really have um, someone with more experience than me that was also into that. And so I reached out right to like Lynn Turkstra, um, Audrey Holland, um, McKay Solberg in the world of dementia, um, Becky Kayyem and Natalie Douglas, like, just like if there's like a researcher that I'm like, yes, what they're talking about here, that is what we need to be doing. Um, in my experience, like the vast majority of those research level people, they are getting back to you. And if you see an article by them that you can't find access to, you can even email the author and sometimes they can send you that article for free, um, which has also been a just kind of a helpful tip for me. But um, it has encouraged me to know that we're in a field where everybody just wants us to succeed and do the best practice that we can do. And that's really what I've felt for from the people that I've reached out to. Good. Awesome. And have you been a mentor to anybody? You know what? I love taking students so much. Um, so I have been a, just a CF supervisor one time, and I just loved my CF so very much. Um, she and I, she's actually across the country now, but she and I still keep in contact. And then I've had many grad student um, placements, probably like maybe eight or so. I, it seems like almost every year I take a student if it works out. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's fun. I love giving back to our profession. And I feel like the, the younger generation, like anything we can do to give them resources and encouragement and help them get through kind of that introductory period of, what it's like to be a medical SLP and just make it as calm and reassuring as possible is kind of what my goal is. Good. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sarah. Um, any other parting thoughts for our listening audience? Thank you so much for having me, Leanne. Um, really fun today. And my parting thoughts are, you know what, just try to change one thing at a time if you usually reach for the game of solitaire, think of something you can do instead and then kind of slowly try to make the transition over if you feel like you're really heavily relying on games. Um, I find that just kind of like easing yourself into it, it keeps getting easier and easier. And rather than feel like you need to do like a complete 180 in your therapy practice, just pick one thing to start with and then you'll slowly be on your journey to person-centered care. Perfect. Oh my gosh, I love that. That is excellent. Yes, a hundred times, a million times over. That's absolutely the way. Picking one thing at a time, making those small changes, they build, they snowball, and before you know it, your whole practice has changed and your patients are now benefiting from it. So, You got it. Excellent. Thank you, Sarah.
Thanks for having me, Leanne. And if anybody wants to catch up with me, they can check out my website, honeycombspeechtherapy.com. And I also have a coupon code for your listeners during the 2019 year. They can just use the code SUP10 and they can get 10% off anything at my store. Awesome. Thanks. Yes, you're welcome. I just want to profusely thank Sarah Barr for all the hard work she has put into preparing for this episode. Sarah's also provided all the links that you'll see in the show notes for you to dig deeper. She also has created materials that can be your stepping stones to implementing meaningful cognitive therapy. So please go check out her site, y'all. I've been using her materials and learning from her via this podcast myself. And I can tell you that I am seeing immediate results with my patients and getting immediate feedback from them that they like the changes and they want more. And there will be more. Sarah and I are teaming up again to talk about assessing functional needs during the evaluation process. And that will be airing in a few weeks. My guest next week is none other than Megan Sutton, creator of the 20 Tactus Therapy apps for adult rehab, Megan is, of course, a speech and language pathologist, and she's located in Vancouver, Canada. Megan is on the clinical faculty at the University of British Columbia. And our topic will be on utilizing technology with aphasia rehab. So tune in because Megan is giving you straight gold. You do not want to miss it. Make sure you've subscribed to the Speech Uncensored podcast so you can keep feeding your brain with delicious bits of medical speech and language pathology goodness. Reviewing the podcast on your listening platform would earn my undying devotion. The show notes are up on www.speechuncensored.com. And as always, I hope this podcast inspires you to dig deeper into these topics. And as a result, your practice flourishes and nourishes others. Thanks for listening.